Hi there, this is Tom Myers. This week on the Bowery Boys, we have a fabulous little treat for you. Something to, to warm up these gray winter days. We are re-releasing a Bowery Boys movie club that we recorded two years ago on Anti-Mame, that bedazzled and bejeweled Technicolor comedy from 1958 starring Rosalind Russell. If you've never seen it, well, lucky you. You can watch it before listening today, or you can watch it afterwards. Either way, you're in for a treat. And patrons, check out your feed today, because we've just released our latest movie club episode on the 1961 Audrey Hepburn classic, Breakfast at Tiffany's. If you're not yet a patron, join the fun, support the show, and enjoy many more movie club episodes over at patreon.com slash boys. Now, dim the lights and make yourself a hot chocolate. Or something stronger. Just remember, Auntie Mame says to stir, never shake. The Bowery Boys Movie Club presents Rosalind Russell, Peggy Cass, and Coral Brown in Auntie Mame. Hi there. Welcome to the Barry Boys Movie Club. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This is, of course, our Patreon-only podcast where we discuss New York City films, give some of the historical context of those films, and kind of like stroll through a synopsis of those movies and basically, you know, have fun with these classics. Or in other words, this is an excuse for Greg and I to talk about anti-mame <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon in February. In fact, Greg, you know, last night, just to... I don't mean to date this, yes, but um, I opted to watch Anti-Mame in lieu of watching The State of the Union. Um, <laughs> and I must tell you, the state of this union was fabulous. <laughs> Sounds like a much more entertaining night than most of the country had, apparently. <laughs> I actually watched some of it during the Super Bowl, which I would not have watched anyway, but I heard was also just as big a snooze. <laughs> This episode, we are featuring the movie Anti-Mame, a film based on a play, based on a novel, based on the 1955 novel called Anti-Mame, An Irreverent Escapade by Edward Everett Tanner III, who wrote under his pen name, Patrick Dennis. Right, because Patrick Dennis is the one of the main protagonists in the story, that being Patrick the Boy nephew of Mame Dennis. So he writes a novel. Let's just step back a second. He wrote this novel in 1955. Mm-hmm. It becomes a Broadway play. Yes. Also starring Rosalind Russell. And Peggy Cass. And Peggy yes. Cass in 1956. And then this movie comes out in 1958 as the play is just wrapping up on Broadway. Right. And this is always Mame. We're not talking about Mame the musical. At this point. <laughs> no, so there's like, th- you need like a flow chart on the walls essentially because there's a book that spawned a play that spawned a movie, mm-hmm. but then also spawned a musical version of the book that then spawned a film, vertical, a film <laughs> version <laughs> of the musical. Right, so Mame the Musical, which premiered on Broadway starring Angela Lansbury in the 1960s. In fact, in 66, mm-hmm. that was based on... On the movie or on the novel? I don't. Actually- I, I bet one of our listeners can tell us. <laughs> well, anyway, it's all based on the same source material. And by the way, the movie 
which came out in 1974, is probably the the least critically acclaimed of all these variations. The, the, with the Luc- final, the musical movie. Yes, with Lucille Ball. Um, that was kind of panned when it came out. But this movie, however, was a huge hit when it came out in 1958. Tom, it had... Wait, a hit with the critics or with the general public? Uh, oh, both. Well, first, well, let me start first with this splashy opening because it has a very unique debut at Radio City Music Hall on December 4th, 1958. So about three or four weeks before it releases. Oh, it actually releases on Christmas throughout the country. But it's splashy Radio City Music Hall, December 4th. So it's part of the holiday presentation, meaning the movie's like two hours and 20 minutes. Well, they tacked on basically the Radio City Holiday Spectacular yeah. that's on before it. There was an underwater ballet, the annual nativity scene, a comic novelty called Julian and His Pets, and a space-themed number with the, of course, Radio City Rockettes. All of that, and then the movie starts playing. I mean, that's almost <laughs> absurd, knowing the content of MAME, of anti-MAME, that she would be preceded by a living nativity scene. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's almost like one of her moments in the movie, one of her phases that she goes through. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a hit with the critics and a huge hit at the box office. Anti-Mame was the second highest grossing film of the year. Second grossing. Second highest only to the number one film that year was South Pacific. Take us back. (laughs) Well, wait. This, you know, so my immediate instinct is to say, take us back to 1958. You know what? 1958 was also kind of like, those were some messy times, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We have the suburbanization of cities that are starting to kick in, people sort of like taking off for the suburbs. You can kind of feel that happening here, which brings me to something, Uh and I don't want to get too far off here, but this movie largely takes place in some ways we're talking about three different eras Uh we're talking about the 20s and 30s when the action takes place but we're also talking about the 50s when it was written and when we have to look at this movie today and figure out okay how does this fit into 1958 when it came out and then we're also looking at today like what what do we make of that in 2019 so it's very interesting to look at it instead of the late 20s when you know we're going to try to place it in new york yeah Placing it in the late 50s. Yeah, there's a couple like a major things we have to keep in mind, which we'll get to during the show. And although we love this movie, there are elements of it that are extremely dated and even like offensive. Yes. So we'll get to those. But before we dive into kind of the meat of the story and what the story is about, what are your personal experiences with this movie? What what is what is this movie? What role has it played in your life? It is one of the first movies that really kind of like knocked me out in a way as a teenager. I'm going to take you back to when I was 18. I guess I just turned 18. I was in high school, senior year, and was hoping that I would get accepted into a college in New York because I really, 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 really wanted to leave Ohio and move to New York. And I had a wonderful English teacher, Mr. Haas. And he was he was a great guy, very... Uh, you know, like out of place in a way in the small town in Ohio. He he should have been, let's just say that he was great. And because he was in the small town, he touched people who like would not have had access to that kind of refined education. Yeah. Case in point, he takes me aside at one point and says, do you like classic films? And I said, mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah. I thought I was pretty sophisticated. He gave me All About Eve on VHS. Okay, wow. Another movie that we could talk about. On oh, this. sure. Yeah. 
I, I took it home and I watched it. And I had never seen a movie like that before. You know, I'd never seen Betty Davis before. I, I, it was also New York. It was so New York-y, mm-hmm. the way they talked. I went back the next day and he looked at me, you know, he's kind of nervous and said, what did you think? And I said, that was the most amazing film I've ever seen. And he said, oh, good. I've got more. And he handed me Auntie Mame. So that was the second movie that Mr. Hash shared with me. And when I gave him rave reviews of that, he was like, I think he had my number. So All About Eve was essentially kind of the entry-level drug here (laughs) before he gave you the hard stuff, which was Auntie Mame. Right. So that's my story, perhaps too long. When was, how did you first come into contact living in Missouri yeah, with I, Auntie Mae? I actually don't have that deep of a experience with this movie. I probably didn't even watch it until I moved to New York. But I did love Rosalind Russell because of his girl Friday. Which um, you had seen before you moved to New yeah, York? Yeah, well, it was one of my favorite movies when I was just discovering cinema for the first time mm-hmm. in college, of course, and also being a journalist. That movie was one of my top 10 favorites. I loved her so much. For some reason, this movie didn't enter my sphere of movie watching until the 90s, probably brought on by an experience you and I had in 1999. Do Take you- me back. <laughs> Because it's all a blur. <laughs> well, back when I was reviewing theater, and mm-hmm. we went to out to see the to the Paper Mill Playhouse, which is this like very famous theater out in New Jersey in, in Milburn, in Milburn, mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of things kind of debut or, or try out here sometimes. And they, and they produce say, great things yeah. like a Bronx Tale. Yeah, they're a major, they're a major player. Well, we saw Mame, which is the musical version of Anti Mame, starring Christine Ebersole and ah. Kelly Bishop. Yes, We're, I remember that. I remember so, that. So that that I was like, what is the story? What this is outrageous. And so it was from there that I went back and saw uh, the movie Anti Mame. So and since then I've probably seen it like three or four times, and of course watched it a couple times more for this particular segment. Now, Greg, this is a notoriously long film, right? <laughs> I, I mean, mean, like yeah. every time you see it, you're struck. One is struck by just how much time has passed and it's so intoxicating you feel at times like you're kind of drunk and then you even feel a little bit hungover at times. <laughs> I mean it's that yeah. long and you live in it and become several different people while watching it I think it's um, 144 minutes long <laughs> and we should say really quickly as kind of like a one sentence synopsis oh if I can try try um, how in the uh, world would you sum this up well, in one sentence essentially this movie is about the relationship between a young man man mm-hmm. and his extravagant experienced aunt who lives in New York City and like has a sort of like fluctuating amount of wealth so you're seeing it basically through the eyes of like someone who's a boy and grows up and this is the background you know there's a lot of darkness that the movie doesn't explore for instance his parents are dead and he goes to live with Auntie Mame but I see it as being like a movie about kind of like discovering the world? Well, if, if I might try to sum it up as well in one sentence, I think it is a woman's... And this is from the other angle. Yeah. This is a, a woman's efforts to shield her son from developing into a conventional oh, and boring sure. human being. Well, that is, I think, what the movie actually is about. What's interesting is I think what I described is what the book is about oh. because it's written from his perspective but in fact that is what the movie 
ends up being about, I think. And I think it's a very bold, even very progressive and even edgy movie for it being something that was such a huge blockbuster. In 1958, and that takes us back to the 50s, where we have to think about the fact that this is the McCarthy era, you know, that people are afraid of, you know, things that are left of center and of, you know, socialists and of mm-hmm. nudists in the village. <laughs> and also the fact that this is a single older woman who is kind of unafraid of being who she is. She's not slinking back into the shadows. Uh, she's not ashamed of who she is so it's kind of hard to forget those kind of like political elements to the movie because you're just having such a gay old time making martinis and like dancing around in her apartment so but I think before we launch into kind of like a synopsis here we should talk about the actual inspiration for anti-mame because as you mentioned the book that Patrick Dennis if I might just go with his pen name yeah what's his first name what's his real name Edward Edward Tanner. Edward Everett Tanner III. Edward Everett Tanner III based his book on his actual aunt named Marion Tanner. But she didn't live in Beekman Place. She lived in the village. So it's an interesting... Oh, even better. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in just a second of, a, of what Beekman Place means in the story. But the she really lived in the village. And in fact, lived in the village her entire life. And was probably an, a pretty good embodiment of the kind of old school progressives that would set the stage for the beatnik culture. So Marion Tanner would take people in to her Greenwich Village home. Uh, she would take in people who were destitute, who were in need of shelter, in need of food. Her house was kind of like a revolving door of people coming and going who just needed a place to stay. Many of them very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Like a whole arts community sort of flourished from her living room. In fact, in her obituary on October 31st, 1985 in the New York Times, it starts, Marion Tanner, self-described as, quote, the ultimate Greenwich Village eccentric and the apparent model for the madcap fictional character Auntie Mame died here yesterday. She was 94 years old and had suffered a stroke two months ago. She was living in the village nursing home at 607 Hudson Street where she had lived in recent years. And it goes on to talk about how her house had just like become this haven for quote, struggling artists, writers, free thinkers, radicals, and a wide spectrum of what Miss Tanner sometimes called, quote, bohemian types. Now, what sort of a sad note on this is that she had a falling out with Patrick, with Edward, and they never reconciled. Uh, Patrick Dennis, Edward, later claimed that Maine was actually based on a variety of different women and not his actual aunt. And at one point, she was actually thrown out of her home uh, because she hadn't been able to pay the mortgage. And meanwhile, Patrick, or Edward, was making all this money from the sale of the book. Yeah, I mean, she inspired all of these various properties that are now out in the world. You know, by the way, I was anti-mame. I was about to say an Oscar-winning film. Mm -hmm. It's actually not an Oscar-winning film, which is kind of shocking. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Rosalind Russell, Best Actress, Peggy Cass, Supporting Actress, but lost all of them, and lost, in fact, most of them, including Best Picture, to Gigi. Oh. <laughs> now, I... Gigi. I, we talk about, you know, a, a movie that it, we all wish we could kind of forget. <laughs> let's begin. Moving on. Yes, mo- let's begin our synopsis, but let's begin it by talking first about our setting, which is Beekman Place. Specifically, 
three Beekman Place, which is not actually an address that exists. Oh. Now, Beekman Place is... And we're talking to the east side, kind of north of today's UN. Yeah, it's a tiny lane between 49th and 51st Street. Indeed, it was, this is old Beekman land, the old the Beekman, Beekman family. family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, to give a little bit more historical information, I'm going to turn to this book that I found here called The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York. Oh. So I'm actually going to read from something that we wrote about the kind of early history of Midtown East. The Beekmans were among New York's oldest families, tracing lineage to Dutch immigrant Wilhelmus Beekman who arrived at the settlement of New Amsterdam in 1647. By 1765, his great-grandson James Beekman had built a majestic house overlooking the East River at around today's 51st Street and 1st Avenue. So Mm -hmm. on this spot, and named it Mount Pleasant. The house, we must assume, contained much pleasantness. (laughs) Alas, it was short-lived, for by the late 19th century, a mass of slums stretched from the Lower East Side all the way up the river. The Beekman home was but a genteel memory by the 1880s. When Grand Central Terminal was redeveloped in 1913, its old above-ground tracks were buried and covered by a new Grand Boulevard optimistically named Park Avenue. A more unusual force, an an early sort of gentrification, arrived that very decade with the development of exclusive family mansions for various Morgans and Vanderbilts on Sutton Place, which again took advantage of this commanding view. The elegant Turtle Bay Garden Colony rose in the 1920s out of a row of deteriorating tenements, their festive new faces drawing in movie stars and socialites alike. But it wasn't until the completion of the United Nations headquarters in 1952 that a new identity for the neighborhood was forged and pleasantry, now of the diplomatic kind, returned to the old Beekman property. So the important thing to remember out of that little excerpt is that Beekman Place, as we're going to describe it, does not have a UN there right mm. so it's 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 these fairly new developments of these old families the morgans the vanderbilts and it's kind of a secluded little area of wealth that's sort of tucked away here on the waterfront right and i, I even looked up also to see if number three beekman existed i found right instead the number one beekman uh-huh was constructed in 1929 which is really where our story begins. Our story begins technically in 1928. Yes. Um, but it's just kind of interesting to think that for a whole portion of, of the action here, especially you know after the stock market crashes, and we see Mame in her house, during that entire period, there would have been a major construction project <laughs> yes. happening right outside her balcony. I mean, there's a lot of... It's still kind of a hot neighborhood when she's living there. Like So that's just to keep in mind, because to me, it's represents kind of old wealth and something kind of stayed but it was new but it was very new in the 1920s okay and by the and then today for by the way a lot of beekman place because of its proximity next to the united nations building many of the buildings around here house consulates and permanent missions which by the way auntie mame would have loved she would have been so into (laughs) it imagine all the travel connections oh i know all the exotic people who could have could have come over for a cocktail party well let's begin by starting with that kaleidoscope opening yes the very first thing we see for the opening title sequence is red gloves a cigarette holder and a kaleidoscope Mm -hmm. i mean that's the way to start a movie (laughs) 
And we also see pretty quickly that the screenplay is by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Which I completely forgot about, actually. Yeah. I was stunned to see right. them. I was like, oh, well, of course. They who brought us on the town 14 years before this, mm-hmm. because on the town hit Broadway in 1944. So it's interesting. I mean, they didn't work on the Broadway play, but they helped to adapt it for the, yes. for the screen. So you also notice that it's filmed in Technorama. Technirama. Technirama, sorry. Right. And because it, it, did, it did get nominated for an Academy Award for cinematography, which is interesting because it barely leaves this like one particular set. But there's something so rich in a way that movies before that weren't quite able to reach out and grab things. There's almost a virtual 3D quality happening here. But but this does Technorama did mean I think that it's you know it's almost like cinemascope it's yeah, it's an uh-huh. ultra wide screen. Let's not forget that one of the reasons that this came into fashion, cinemascope and these other knockoffs mm-hmm. like Technorama, Technorama, was that you know people were staying home by the late 1950s. Everybody had TVs and you could stay home and you could watch entertainment for free. So movie theaters were in a panic to introduce new kinds of viewing experiences that could pull people back out of their living rooms and that couldn't possibly be replaced uh, by sitting home on your sofa and yeah. watching a tiny little screen. Well, I mean, we're, we're living in that moment right now, 60 years later, you know, with uh, with movie theaters like Alamo and, and, and bringing in cocktails or 3D movies or things like that. So we should mention, by the way, that the director of the film is Morton DaCosta. So really, in the first scene, we see it's September 14th, 1928, and we see that Mame's brother... Edwin Dennis. Edwin Dennis, who lives in Chicago, signs his will on September 14th, 1928, and signs in the case of his demise that his son, Patrick, would go to live with his, quote, crazy sister who lives off (laughs) in New York City. Although the expenses... Uh, for his upbringing would be supervised by another individual, a Mr. Babcock of Knickerbocker Bank. Cut to the next day when he dies on September 15th, 1928, by collapsing in the steam room of the Stockbrokers Club oh in Chicago. My. So um, then we're suddenly in a uh, in a cab with Nora, the maid, and young Patrick a week later on the way to Mame's apartment bad reverse projection behind them <laughs> yes. as they're technically going down Park Ave or something. They eventually get to Beekman Place. They pay the cabbie 95, 95 cents. cents, which is $14. Still, I think... Oh, pre- well, well, if, if, oh you looked that up. Yeah, I did. But, but if they just came from Grand Central, like on the train, that's a very expensive cab ride, I think. But anyway... Yes, what she says, don't be taking us by way of the North Pole, driver. <laughs> We're not greenhorns, you know. <laughs> so they pull up. The elevator leaves them in front of her door, which is in a sort of Chinese motif. So who opens the door, Greg? So uh, one of the um, one of the problematic things about the movie is Auntie Mame's quote Japanese houseboy Ito is Ito. the name of the character. Yes, played by the actor Yuki Shimoda. Now this is a kind of problematic thread that we'll get. We're going to talk about a little bit further in the show, but he opens the door and invites Nora and Patrick into what is a large party that's happening here. Rollicking. Uh, there are like people of all different shapes and sizes. There's a man playing the piano upside down. There's there's He's monkeys. He's playing the Maple Leaf Rag, by the way. He is playing oh. ragtime upside down. <laughs> monkeys, did you say? There's a monkey, yes. I mean, everyone has been drinking the entire day. It's supposed, it seems like it's around like six o'clock because someone at one point mentions everyone's going to Clifton's. It's nearly seven. 
So oh, I didn't so, catch so, so that. It's an early evening party. But we see that the, the room is filled with artists and actors and philosophers and composers. I mean, it is a real creative group of people. Yes. And then we meet Mame. She appears <laughs> up on her landing above the party looking down and her first line is yelled out help is on the way darlings that adorable bootlegger is on his way over with a case of gin <laughs> so that's her first line do you know by the way that um when they first filmed that that she broke her ankle i didn't know they that. had to refilm it but that also puts us right in the middle of prohibition it reminds us that yes it's 1928 we did a couple of Bowery Boys shows about mm-hmm. New York during Prohibition, about the speakeasies, Texas Guinan, um, Jimmy Walker, the mayor. So that's where we are here, 1928, that if you wanted booze, you could get it, the, if you could pay yeah, for it. The good times are rolling. Now, she comes down the steps, see, takes Nora and Patrick for, for guests to her party, which, of course, it's such a varied party. I can kind of understand that. Uh, right, she thinks that Maybe Nora is there to help out in the kitchen. Yes. And that she's brought Patrick to work. Yes. But anyway, she almost on a dime immediately realizes that, you know, she this is now her charge. And she's almost immediately proud of it because she turns almost a minute later and, and is like, but darling, I'm your Auntie Mame. This is my little boy. Would you like a mar... Because <laughs> she's about to <laughs> offer him a martini, and so of course, kind of realizes. But she's like, she, I, I appreciate how she, once she realizes what the situation is, she's gonna go for it. Yes, and she takes him on a wild tour. But meanwhile, Nora looks around and calls the place a den of criminals. She wants to get out <laughs> because she's also recognizing that it is against the law. Yeah. to drink. She takes him over because he must be famished to a buffet. Right, that's a a big spread. Yes. And Patrick tastes his first caviar, or as he calls it, fish jam. (laughs) Um, Fish berry jam, sorry. It's uh, it's at this moment that we first hear the obnoxious laugh of Vera, who we'll we'll learn a little bit more about later. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is right here because they go out onto the terrace Mm -hmm. and we see in the distance, of course, the 59th Street Bridge. Of course, it's just a it's a painting of the 59th Street Bridge. It is like a high school musical quality backdrop. And we we should say, if we haven't made this clear, none of this is filmed on location. In fact, it seems like it's filmed in the same large echoey room, (laughs) right? It is. Um, It's like it is filmed in a lot at uh, Warner Brothers. So Mame introduces Patrick to Acacia's page, who we'll talk about in a second. But standing behind them during the whole conversation are these two women Mm -hmm. who are dressed in more like masculine clothes. They're in like male drag. And they are, yeah, they're male drag. They're essentially Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. Uh, they're sort of like standing yeah. in. and Because those two women were kind of one of the leaders of the international bohemian scene. And although they weren't in New York in the late 1920s, savvy audiences would have known immediately who these sort of parodies were. And I just love the expressions on their face as the following conversation happens with Acacia's Page. Right, because Mame introduces Acacia's Page as this philosopher who just runs the most charming school in the village, quote, where they do all sorts of advanced things. And she says, (laughs) oh, Acacia's, don't you think that you might have some place in your school for my Patrick? (laughs) 
you know, and Patrick asks if they wear uniforms and Paige says, at my school, we wear nothing. It's heaven. It'll stimulate his psyche and stir up his libido. Now, naively, Tom, because I was like, this has got to be based on something. Yesterday, I Googled the phrase nudist schools. Now, uh huh. I, I would <laughs> love to see your Google search history sometime. Please see what ads they're targeting to you. Please don't. Please don't do this. If you, unless you want to be possibly arrested by the FBI at some point, do not Google this phrase. However, I did eventually get to the core of the information, which is that naturalism was a, a rather big philosophical movement. Nudist camps, a lot of uh, nudism really came forward, especially in Europe or mostly in Europe, and began to come to the United States in the 1930s. So this is in the backdrop of this, what is essentially just a gag. But Meanwhile, back to to Vera Charles, um, the first lady of the American stage, who's chatting with Mame's other best friend, Lindsay Wolsey, mm-hmm. the publisher. These are recurring characters throughout the whole thing. Yes. The party then clears out because I guess the booze is gone and everybody moves on to the next party. And Vera gets pulled upstairs. She has had too much to drink. And Vera Charles, first woman at the theater, is being taken up to be put to put, put down <laughs> for the evening. Yes. And young Patrick looks at his aunt and says, is the English lady going to be okay? And Mame retorts, oh, she's not English, darling. She's from Pittsburgh. And he says, well, she sounds English. And she says, well, when you're from Pittsburgh, you have to do something. <laughs> One of the other gray lines. Yeah. There's so, so many gray lines. I mean, how how do we even pick them? So anyway, they uh, so but Mame and Patrick have a kind of a nice bonding conversation here, and she realizes that Patrick's father didn't really like her very much, and uh, you kind of see what's in a way what's at stake with Mame and her position in the world as this uh, older single woman who's now going to raise a child. Now, before we get to the next scene. And they are truly scenes in the same way that the play is. Each scene is actually concluded in a very curious way, which looks like it is actually on stage involving a spotlight. The rest of the set goes black, and the main character who's being focused on is like literally like in a, in a soft spotlight for just two or three seconds longer before that fades away. Yeah, so you have a fade out with a spotlight on the central character. It's... It's very dramatic. Sometimes I feel like it's a little creepy. You know? <laughs> it is. It could be used, that effect could be used in a horror movie with great effect. Now, the next scene is interesting. A lot of scenes do this where it seems to be the next day, but could also, in, in another sense, be several months from this uh, moment with the implication of like, this kind of thing happens all the time here at the house. Because we, we see Patrick and he's immediately like put together like a, like a toy airplane. Like yes. somehow in he the has time a toy, it's elapsed. He has a toy airplane that's on a string. Mm-hmm. Now this we find out is actually two weeks after he's arrived. Oh, so two he's weeks. been there for two weeks. Okay. He's got this toy airplane on a string and he's swinging it around above his head. He runs into Auntie Mame's room, wakes her up. She opens her eyes and sees this thing flying over her head and screams, bats! <laughs> <laughs> Which is another great line. 
Meanwhile, however, it's two weeks later, and her entire apartment has been refashioned. It's in a completely new decor. The dragons of the last scene are out, and now it's all blues and floral. But do you see why I was confused? Because Vera happens to be here, also still sleeping in the next room. You so- see that she's always <laughs> yes, she's always there. And Mame also says to young Patrick, Oh, tell Ito, that's the butler, tell Ito to bring your Auntie Mame a light breakfast. Black coffee and a sidecar. <laughs> um, so Mame is taking care of Patrick, but there's a trustee uh, from the Knickerbocker Bank who's come, yes, who's on his, who calls a Mr. Babcock, who is basically assigned to make sure that that crazy aunt of Patrick's doesn't do anything too wild and that he is raised in a most responsible and conservative environment. So she has to get ready really quickly. Vera comes in to help get outfits so they can like look presentable. And it's it's at this point where she makes her interchange about getting a new haircut. She should like do her hair natural as Vera does, to which Mame says, if I kept my hair natural like yours, I'd be bald. <laughs> So then the doorbell rings. Mr. Babcock has arrived and Mame says to Patrick, Patrick, go downstairs and make Mr. Babcock feel at home, just like Auntie Mame taught you. Which means that Patrick runs downstairs, lets Mr. Babcock in, and then says, would you care for a martini, Mr. Babcock? And he says, sit down, Mr. Babcock. I'll make it like I do for Mr. Wolcott. Stir, never shake, bruises the gin. <laughs> First of all, that n- mention of Walcott, of course, is in Algonquin Roundtable, a nod to Alexander Walcott, who apparently comes to the apartment all the time. Yeah, and apparently <laughs> likes his martinis shaken, not stirred. And um, I would say Patrick, or stirred, never shaken. <laughs> yeah, Patrick has some serious vermouth skills. I actually am going to use that next time that I make martinis. Pour it in and just dump it out so that's lining the glass. Oh, yeah. Well... It's then that the first conversation arises around schooling. So where is he going to be schooled? Uh, Mr. Babcock says, St. Boniface. Mame counters, how about Acacius' school in the village? And Babcock says, no, 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 no. Your brothers will specify a conservative education. So the village, even at that time in, you know, the late 20s or in the 1950s, yeah. the village meant something Far from conservative. Yeah, I mean, it it had already secured this reputation by the late 19th century. So then by the 1920s, it is like not a place that you would send your child for a proper, respectable education. Well, in fact, it is where... Uh, where Mame sends uh, sends Patrick because she kind of lies that the Bixby school is where he's supposed to go but in the next scene we see that Babcock visits the Bixby school and does not find Patrick there do we know anything about Bixby no I was looking up some of the names of the school the Browning school which is mentioned in an earlier exchange is a real school on the Upper East Side but I'm not sure I think Bixby was made up for this for this film. Yeah, and that the shot actually of him going into the Bixby School and not finding Patrick there, it looks like it's in California. <laughs> it's got this yeah. giant, wide open, you know, front front yard, and it just lawns around it. It doesn't look like a New no, York school, not at all. So then we're back in the apartment with Wolcott. Mame has been out shopping. She's in a gorgeous blue cobalt blue dress, and she comes in and. Wolcott is mad because he didn't find Patrick at Bixby. He found him at Mr. Page's co-ed school in the village playing, quote, 
fish family. <laughs> well, my favorite part of this horrific description of fish family is Patrick's sort of like matter of fact, well, we do it right after yogurt time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, eating yogurt in the 1920s would have been like, you know, a kind of a, a progressive pursuit that you would do in a progressive school. So basically, Babcock insisted that Patrick is going to be whisked off the next day to St. Boniface's boarding school and that Mame will only, quote, get her hands on him over Christmas and summer breaks. At that moment, Vera Charles barges in with the bad news that the stock market has crashed. Yeah. So Lindsay, by the way, has also arrived here. Yes. Um, Lindsay is there and she... Antimane breaks down on his shoulder, of course, during all of these exchanges. And by the way, we did a show on the stock market crash, which is probably worth a listen. One thing I learned from that is it didn't just all happen at once. It's it's over several days because here it's like a phone call from the broker that the butler takes who says, Mame, Miss Dennis, the stockbroker wants to speak to you before he jumps out the window. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's, you know, dark humor. But you get the impression that basically, like, the entire market crashed immediately in one fell swoop. In fact, what Lindsay says is, it can't affect us. We have our money in Bank of the United States, which is a joke for the audience because that that's a Bronx-based bank that is often said to have started the Great Depression, although that bank failed in 1930. But, I mean, that would have been, that's just kind of a wink to the audience who would have perhaps been closer to these events and might have known that. So to sum up, so now we're at the end of kind of the first stage because we've seen Mame, filthy rich, right, living in Beekman Place without a care in the world. The stock market has just crashed and Vera, who's standing right there, who's still the first lady of the stage, says to her friend Mame, Mame, I can get you a job on stage with me in my new production. Um, it's just a small little part, but you'll have something to do. You'll you'll have a job. So now we're, we're going to then head into the next section of this movie in which Mame tries out unsuccessfully several different jobs. Mame is excited for this and breaks out her moves here in the living room doing something that she and Vera used to do back in the day. I'm a choo-choo girl from Choo-Chin-Chow, which was an actual musical comedy from 1916 and will not ever be revived in a thousand years. For, (laughs) For obvious, like... Horrible reasons. Yeah, I mean, yet another thing that this film does that's sort of infuriating, where it it both exoticizes Asian culture and then diminishes it or references things that perhaps in the day was seen as okay or nostalgic or funny. And today... It seems to be treating this culture with two two different hands, both kind of like exalting it in one sense and then diminishing it in the other sense, especially with the appearance of the Japanese houseboy, with the appearance of this particular song. And there's a couple other incidents. This movie has some troubles in 2019, but we are going to go into the next section now, which is in New Haven uh, at the Schubert. Yes, Mame, the actress, is at the Schubert in New Haven for the tryout of Midsummer Madness with Vera Charles. And the camera pans down the placard outside the theater. You see Vera Charles' name at the very top and all the way down at the very bottom. (laughs) It says Mame Dennis. 
She is playing Lady Iris. Oh. It also says birthplace of the na- of the nation's greatest hits, and indeed, this is the place where some of the greatest shows have had their tryouts, including Oklahoma, Streetcar Named Desire, and South Pacific. Same theater. Wow. <laughs> well, and you know, you see lots of references again back to um, All About Eve. They also go to New Haven for the tryouts. So what is Mame's role here? The play is Midsummer Madness yes. is the play, right? Yes. And I guess it's supposed to be a comedy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Starring Vera. Mame, all she has to do is walk in at the very last scene of the entire play and she like accompanies some other man onto the stage and just sets up Vera's final line of the entire <laughs> evening. That's all she has to do. She has to deliver like three three sentences. But of oh, course, yes. she's incredibly late. She's continuously like messing with her makeup and she's wearing all these spangles and bells well, and things. She's got these charm bracelets on that are so distractingly loud that while she's getting ready backstage, they're trying to have some serious dialogue on the stage. Like, after all, she is a princess. He a commoner. But then they can't really focus because there's all this jingly jangly happening in the back. And at one point, Vera is like, what the hell do you have back there, reindeer? <laughs> and then when Mame does come out on stage, she tries to, as she later explains, make something out of her parts and she hijacks the entire ending. She ruins it. She at one point gets stuck literally to Vera. It's a disaster. The, <laughs> the curtain comes down and she is left abandoned on the stage with the ghost lights in probably the fastest striking of a stage I've ever seen. They ever, are all cleared out. Ever in history. They all just... And by the way, you also see the asbestos curtain lower, which that is like kind of a, a, a blast from the past. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. Which would not be there anymore. Anyway. Patrick pa- yeah. comes and he comforts her and says that he thought that she was very good. Everybody noticed you. He's very proud of her. And he escorts Lady Iris back to her hotel. Creepy fade out. Yeah. Light on her face. Um, but we know that, okay, she's not going to work as an actress. So now we have this fabulous shot. Uh, yeah. The the classified ad, right? She is scanning the help wanted ads, holding a bejeweled cigarette holder, and comes across <laughs> a telephone switchboard operator ad. And what would the name of the company be that she gets this job as a telephone switchboard operator? Are you challenging me to see if I actually wrote this down? Because maybe I did write down Whittacom, Gutterman, Applewhite, Biberman, and Black. Black. <laughs> Whittacom, Gutterman, Applewhite, Biberman, Black. Whittacom, Gutterman, Applewhite, blah, 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 blah. I mean, <laughs> like, it is like some of the greatest slapstick ever recorded on film just this one scene at one point she lifts the console and it's like it's like light and emits from it like it's some otherworldly beast that she's trying to wrestle yeah like voices are coming out of the cords at some point well, yeah she's she's lost in like this tangle of cords trying to connect mr babblecock to mr whittleman <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 great. Needless to say, that job doesn't work out for her, and she moves on. Luckily, it's it's before Christmas time, so they're hiring new people over at the Macy's. Right. She also sees that ad: sales uh-huh. girls needed for pre-Christmas season. R. H. Macy and Company. So, did you notice, by the way, that when she's coming through the classifieds at that point, she no longer has a cigarette holder? Oh. She's lost the bejeweled cigarette holder, and she has just a. 
a lipstick stained cigarette. Well, she's hawking things. Like she's you're you're slowly seeing her her glamorous wealth kind of like disappear before our eyes. And she's drinking tea on a kind of like dirty oh. a dirty saucer. Yeah. So what happens here at Macy's? So Mame appears in a purple dress, uh, a pencil over her ears, and delivers her opening line. I don't know how I got over in Tinker Toys. <laughs> Right, there are Tinker Toys all around her. I love that. I played with those as a kid. Yeah. Her receipts are an absolute disaster. It's like, first it's, you know, the pre-Christmas rush. Um, but her receipts, turns out she only knows how to do COD. Um, and, and, it's, and by the way, these are the days when, like, you had, like, carbon copies of things. Which duplicates yeah, yeah, and duplicate, triplicates. Duplicates and triplicates. So, you know, I can imagine how that would be very difficult pre-computer. And lo and behold, Beauregard Jackson Pickett Burnside shows up. A charming Southern gentleman arrives trying to order 24 pairs of roller skates. <laughs> and he, he approaches Mame, who is apparently at the, at the roller skate counter. It's like a, yeah, a whole, if you, you realize that actually there's just roller skates all around her. And that seems to be one of the things that she focuses on in her job. By the way, I looked, I went to Macy's and you can actually still buy roller skates. Not, I mean, roller blades, definitely, but even roller skates. Oh, that's still have great. Some, yeah. But Mame Dennis is not selling them. <laughs> that's for sure. By this the way, can last. you just pause for one second to say that this scenario and this sort of like this these quick sketches uh-huh. seem like something that Lucille Ball might play. Oh, There's yeah. There's something very Lucy about this. Well, but what's interesting is in 1958, I mean, Lucy was already doing her thing on TV, so this was... I wonder a, if it was sort of affected or influenced, influenced by Lucy. by Lucy, probably. And then Lucille Ball would go on to play Mame in the movie version of the musical. Yeah. Yes. So she would actually do these scenes that we're now saying might have been inspired by her, interestingly wow. enough. Well, so back to Burnside, uh, Beauregard. Um, he helps her straighten out her duplicates and triplicates, to which she says, oh, that's what all that tissue paper is for. <laughs> she didn't understand that that's what was going on. She ends up getting fired. She was running from Macy's for her life, and uh-huh. she turns around and says, don't forget the skates. Get them at Gimbel's. <laughs> Gimbel's, which is, of course, Macy's f- most famous rival across the street. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that rivalry would, of course, come up in an earlier film called The Miracle on 34th Street. That's right. And Gimbel's, the building, which is still there today, is part of the Manhattan Mall. Mm-hmm. Now, after a little brief scene of her walking down Fifth Avenue and seeing a S- Salvation Army Santa, she arrives home to, the, it's like, it's literally sapped of color. The walls are, are all gray. Fortunately, though, or, or maybe disturbingly, Patrick has made a gift for her and is hanging on the wall. Yes, it is by Patrick Picasso. <laughs> it's a little bit of like modern art. It's an avant-garde depiction of Santa during his black and blue period. <laughs> <laughs> he also gives her an early Christmas present, a bracelet with quote, not quite diamonds, because they have no money. Um, and he says, see, they're they're quiet, so nobody will hear you when you're coming. It's very it's, sweet. It's very sweet. And there's another uh, sweet gesture that happens that is, like, not as convincing, and that is Nora and Ito come out of the kitchen and have paid 
the grocery and the butcher bill so Mame doesn't have to worry about it. It's an extraordinary gesture that's nonetheless a little weird. (laughs) Yeah, it seems kind of unrealistic, though they say that they've been setting some money aside. And Nora, remembering that Nora is the same woman who dropped off Patrick and she's just stayed with him. So Mame kind of inherited Nora (laughs) and adopted Nora as well. And Nora says, you're a loving woman, mom. You're odd, but you're loving. And by the way, this is also the move, the moment in the musical where they would sing, we need a little Christmas. Oh, okay. It's hard. If you're familiar with uh-huh. the musical version, you know, you see these scenes and you think, okay, so this is where they... This is where they well, have this number. Yeah, in the in the movie, they turn on what has to be the phoniest looking radio ever in a film, and that's like that's where the musical interlude, I guess, would be in the musical. However, the glum, melancholy mood perks up when they get a little visitor. That would be, of course, Beauregard Jackson Pickett Burnside, who has tracked down. Mame Dennis. He says, Mame, do you know how many, what is it, 92 Mame Dennises in the New York City phone book? And he finally finds her. Well, he was almost going to get his visa and set sail for Brooklyn (laughs) to to look for her. (laughs) He was even going to go that far. He was even going to go to Brooklyn. Yes. And he's tracked her down and he just, he wanted to invite her out for dinner. And Mame says, wait, he said, let me just go downstairs and tell the taxi driver he can move on. And she said, you left a taxi running in the middle of the depression while you came up here? (gasps) To which he responds, well, I'm sorry, but my family's in oil. It just keeps on gushing. There's not much I can do about it. (laughs) We then find that he has a plantation named Peckerwood. (laughs) That's a great scene. But by the way, she, he invites her down to Peckerwood. Yes. You ought to come down to Peckerwood. And she said, Peckerwood? Who's Peckerwood? <laughs> but anyway, his him coming in lightens things up. He invites them all to dinner. She puts on a Christmas ornament from the tree. Right? On she, herself she, and on Nora. <laughs> on Nora. And they head out and the scene fades to black. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Well, has he? Not yet. So I die an old maid sometime before lunch. No, you won't. You look real convincing, like a magazine cover. Horror stories. Oh. What's in there? That's the horse I picked out for you. What's his name? Meditation. I could trip you. You'd only break a leg. I can't disgrace Oh, not in front of all these people. animal in the eye with a masterful gaze. Fix the master in the eye with an animal gaze in the astral eye. Fix the aster in the maze with an animal guy. But at this point in the movie now that she's with Bo, we actually leave New York City for a while, so maybe we can kind of speed up our little play-by-play. Also, because this scene makes me deeply uncomfortable anyway. So, so long story short, she goes down to Peckerwood. In Georgia. And meets Bo's very difficult, very typically southern family on a plantation and of course they all hate her because she's a quote new york philly we also meet Bo's ex-girlfriend maybe sally cato yeah well she tries to sabotage her visit down here when they go on a fox hunt right let's just say mame (laughs) spirals into and collapses into some kind of a fox hunt she lies she says she knows how to ride only can do it side saddle. So worst possible scenario, she winds up in a horse race <laughs> against Sally Cato. There's even some like interesting parallelism that's actually going on with Auntie Mame and the fox because we've actually seen Auntie Mame in like fox furs earlier. And now she at one point is like actually holds a fox. Well, it, <laughs> after the the chase itself, which is pure like Preston Sturges style madcap mm-hmm. comedy. It's so unrealistic. They don't. They they use reverse projection. In fact, when she's quote unquote riding the horse. Oh sure, yeah. To comedic effect. I mean, it looks not at all like she's actually on a horse at one point. It looks like she's on a merry-go-round. <laughs> yeah, pretty at, much at, at, at one point. But in the end, she she catches the fox. 
<laughs> so, I mean, in, in a way, like, she, like the fox, has kind of outmaneuvered all these people who are chasing her, all these people who are against her. So she actually ends up kind of falling even more in love with Bo because of this, and he's very impressed by what she's done. And as a result, Patrick sees this. Well, and, and he proposes. Oh, and then proposes marriage. Patrick, who's there gets really sad because he finally realizes that, like, he might be losing Mame. Because Beauregard says, let's head off to Europe for for a number of years. Yes. For, for several years on a honeymoon, just the two of us. So we see them in an- another scene, actually at the Chelsea Piers. And- <laughs> you noticed that too? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's maybe the only exterior shot that was actually shot on location. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we look across to New Jersey, we see the, the, the piers along the west side, um, and then we see them boarding their, their ship to head over to Europe, to they, La Havre. Yeah, and so they're all you know waving them goodbye, and here they are on their adventure across the world. We have a montage now that goes back and forth between their travels and then things that happen to Patrick. And the letters. They're yes, they're uh-huh. reading letters and getting packages from each other. And so they're traveling in Egypt. And Mame is growing increasingly concerned that her young Patrick is actually becoming a sort of more conservative and conventional little man under the direction of the banker Babcock. Um, what we also see during this montage is the the child who played Patrick Dennis now magically grows up into what seems to be a teenager or young man, although the actor He's in college. I think mean, he looks like he's 30, but that's just the way it is. So this also happens as sort of during this montage, because now we're going to deal with the older Patrick for the rest of the film. Right. Obviously, they have been gone for years yes. at this mm-hmm. point. And they're climbing the Matterhorn. Uh, I guess they're in Switzerland. And Bo is trying to get the perfect picture of Mame. And they've been setting up this up in a kind of like not subtle fashion that he likes to climb right. like, to get the perfect shot. Yeah. Um, oh, he climbed the Eiffel Tower at one point. I mean, this does have modern applications today with people taking dangerous selfies. So this is kind of that. <laughs> That's right. Um, except that he takes it too far and while up in the Matterhorn takes a step back, and he falls to his death. And it's so strange because it's played almost to comedic effect. Tom, it actually reminded me of that game on The Price is Right called Cliffhangers, you know, that and because they actually plunges off. I mean, that must be like weirdly inspired by this scene because, of course, it's sort of lighthearted. It is odd. I mean, because Anti-Mame is... A comedy yeah. at its heart. So we here we have this major character who has kind of rescued her. You know, what what are we to make of this? That this man has now just disappeared. He's only been with her a couple years, and he's really only in the movie for about 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. So we switch to a new scene where she is now in kind of widow form. Quote, yes. She's a tragic queen, as, as was described by Vera, I think, right? Oh, she's, uh, Vera looks around her, her apartment um, that's been once again changed um, into what she describes as, quote, looking like the main chapel of a funeral parlor. Uh, and <laughs> yes. she says, for the love of God, it's been 10 months already. So we're trying to put the years together. And I think basically it's nine years after Patrick arrived. So we go, basically the main timeline here is 1928 when they arrive. And now we're in this period that's 1937. Mm-hmm. 
And at the very end of the movie, we're in 1946. So it's divided into nine-year mm. intervals. Okay. So they decide that she needs to have a project to kind of get her mind off of things. And they suggest that she write a book. and A memoir. A memoir. And they have taken the liberty of actually hiring a secretary. And so here comes into the story my favorite Peggy Cass playing the secretary, Agnes Gooch. From Speedo. <laughs> from the Speedo uh, Secretary School or whatever. She is hilariously unglamorous. Peggy Cass, let's just talk about Peggy Cass for Please, one second. Because let's she do. I think she steals every scene she's in, and she's <laughs> up against some fierce competition in this. Peggy Cass, by the way, is a Many of us know her actually from her years later doing New York City-based game shows. She was a fixture during the 1960s and 70s on shows like Match Game. To tell the truth, I remember her when I was home with the flu from school watching the $10,000 Pyramid. She would be on there. I frequently associate her with people like Kitty Carlisle. You know, like they would yeah. do the same kind of game shows with them. Back when they really had like actors, actresses, columnists, society people yes. as the judges. <laughs> but she also, she had this whole acting experience that went throughout her entire life. She won the Tony for yeah. her mm-hmm. portrayal of Agnes Gooch in Mame the Play. And then she got a t- an Oscar nomination for this role. Or does, doesn't Rachel Dratch... Oh, yeah. Remind you of Peggy Cass? I think she would play it like if they made another, confusingly, if they decided to make another version of MAME. Maybe if they made a video game version of MAME. (laughs) Called MAMED. (laughs) MAMED. So anyway, so she pops in. There's a dictaphone there, and she's going to help like transcribe what MAME has to say. Yes. And in the meantime, then MAME arrives with Patrick. Uh, The others have hidden themselves in the other room. Uh, but it's hilarious because Mame arrives with Patrick. She's in a great mood, uh-huh. right? She's just, oh, she can't wait to show Patrick the things that she's collected and blah, 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 blah. And then the second that Vera and Wolsey um, show up from the other room, Mame falls just sentimentally, <laughs> just dramatically, you know, into this like pathos of bereavement, and which is totally called out by Vera yes. and by every eye roll that she gives her best well, friend. Well, it, it also says something that she's, she refuses a drink, but then when they, when they introduce this idea of writing a memoir, when they introduce her to Agnes Gooch, who, who's like, who is this woman? I'm a sponge. <laughs> she doesn't say who is this. She says, what is that? Oh, what is that? <laughs> what is that? I'm a sponge. Anyway, she goes from like not having a drink to like immediately. It's like champagne. What her, what her character has been doing. She turns on a dime. Yeah. And so immediately she's like, yeah, give me a fill her up, Patrick. Uh, she then meets her collaborator, a man named Brian O'Banion. He's kind of, the actor kind of reminds me, it's like Vincent Price by way of Downton Abbey a little bit. <laughs> oh, he's, he's super dashing, yeah. But he, he shows up and of course, you know, he's a striking and handsome fellow and very young, like 30 years younger than, 40 years younger than she is. So of course she's immediately smitten and really sort of kowtows to him. Yeah, and I mean, he, he, he offers her his slim volume of poetry, Parched Garden. <laughs> <laughs> delightful. So we then get um, some interplay. We see some interplay between them. And what really happens is he's pretty much just like 
like mooching off of her. Right, like, we have Gooch and, and we have a mooch. <laughs> yes, Gooch, who's actually doing all the work and is actually loving what Mame is actually telling her. And we, we actually see through her eyes that there's some good stories here. But O'Banion is just sort of sitting around eating and being lazy and not doing any work. He is the ultimate freeloader. And we mm-hmm. also get the sense that he's a total phony, right? Uh, still pretentious somehow. Oh, totally. <laughs> Meanwhile, Patrick arrives and breaks things up b- because he tries to seduce Mame. Let's not forget. <laughs> this is also a, a problematic scene today because he like really kind of like forces her down at one point. Yeah. And um, but it's sort of played for laughs here. Yeah. And Patrick walks in on it with the announcement that he has met a girl named Gloria from a respectable conservative family. And we also find out, surprisingly, that Patrick has been avoiding his Auntie Mame. And Mm -hmm. he pleads with her to act normal for once while Gloria visits. He thinks that there are a lot of things about life in general that Gloria and people like Gloria don't need to know. (laughs) Right. Um, And so when she discovers that he may be a little ashamed of her or trying to keep a lot of her life from Gloria, she says... You just dropped by to see if I was scrubbed up presentable. Yeah, there's, this is an actual sad scene because it's the first time we see conflict between the two of them. She also says, should she know that I think you've turned into one of the most beastly, bourgeois, babbity little snobs on the eastern seaboard? But by the end of the scene, they hug and they make yeah. up. So she decides that she does want to meet the family. Meanwhile... They got a call that some producers want to consider her memoir for a movie, but she doesn't want to go to the movie party. Right. Do you remember which studio? Warner? Which made Auntie Mame. Oh, interesting. So, so, but she doesn't want to go. So what she decides to do is kind of like... She doesn't want to go because she wants to be there to meet Gloria. To meet Gloria. Right. So she kind of dresses up, gussies up, Mrs. Gooch, mm-hmm. and you know she pulls off Mrs. Gooch's dress. And this she, is she, another problematic area. She gets she, her drunk, and then she rips yes. her clothes off. Of her. <laughs> to which Gooch replies, "I don't have a very clear picture of what's going on." So, but essentially, kind of like gets glamorizes her a little bit, and then basically will send her and Banyan. Those two will be sent out the door to go to the party. Right. And she also, she encourages Agnes to do this and to go to this this event, even though she's nervous about it, by proclaiming finally the big line of the entire movie, don't you see it's the subject of my book, Live. Mm-hmm. Life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death. <laughs> Which is probably the most famous line in the entire yeah, movie. Yeah, like it's, icon- it's iconic movie line. And we should add that, that Brian only agrees to take... Agnes, not because she's all gussied up and looks beautiful, but because Mame lies to him and says, "Surely you've heard of her mother, the Countess de Gooch." <laughs> so, so he know she knows that Brian is a freeloader, and if Brian thinks that Agnes is actually from an extremely yeah. wealthy family, he'll take her. And he, they can also take out the Dusenberg, which is like her famous, like old style car. The company actually folded in 1937, so by this time it was already kind of like an old classic. So we meet Gloria, who finally steps in at this point. Gloria so, being Patrick's girlfriend. Yeah, so Gloria and Auntie Mame briefly meet. And, and how does that go, Greg? <laughs> well, you know, she's got the most outrageous you know, New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Connecticut 
Connecticut accent. Joanna Barnes, the actress playing Gloria, is so funny. I can't even do the accent. Like, books are awfully decorative, don't you think? Um, oh, my, <laughs> what a stunning apartment. <laughs> we stuffed ourselves as shrafts. Can you imagine speaking French to a counterman at shrafts? Shraff's being, of course, uh, one of the great restaurants of New York in the mid-20th century. And we talked about Shraff's in our recent show on the Automats. You know, I looked it up in a 1939 WPA Guide to New York City, Uh um, which is roughly the same time period that we're talking about here. There were, at this time, 38 Shraff's in the New York City metropolitan area. So Mm Shraff's had really sort of exploded as a chain actually gaining prominence or spreading throughout the city because of the depression, because rents were cheaper. It also says something about Gloria, though, because they're very top drawer, top you know, drawer. they're top drawer, but they're eating at Schraff's. And the, as we'll see when we meet her parents, they're not like high class. They're putting on airs. They may not even be in the social register, although they, they're certainly aiming their whole lives to become members of the social register. And they're name dropping like crazy. And you know, yeah. like she says, she drops within her first line or two that they've just come from Bunny Bixler's, her friend <laughs> at Park Avenue and 71st Street. <laughs> so, you know, Park and 71st is a drop worthy mm-hmm. um, address at this time still is today of course yeah um, uh, bunny bixler we also learn that they are anti-semitic or rather that where they live up in montebank is right near darien of course it's completely restricted to which auntie mame says i'll get a blood test we also learned something else. They're engaged. And and Mame doesn't know this until Gloria sort of blurts it out that, you know, well, for the wedding. And Mame says, excuse me. And it's a, it's a crisis, which is the reason that she does agree to go up to Montebank and visit their home, Upton Downs. Ups, ups and, and Downs. Ups and Downs. Right. Her name is Gloria <laughs> Upson. So there's a lot of there are a lot of ups and puns in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. So she goes up and she meets Gloria's parents here. They have a, a nice little, you know, outdoor cocktails and snacks out on the patio. And this uh, is a little classist, this scene. <laughs> I mean, it's a little it's bit. Very, yes. The, the parents are named Claude and Doris Upson. And, you know, you do get the scene that there's some, there's some elitism happening here because um, Mame is definitely turning up her her nose. That's true. That's at, true. like the kind of cocktail that Claude is making that uses honey. He's also kind of pervy. So both Mame and then both the, and the parents are kind of like snobbish in different ways. They're with all each affected, other, right? They're right. They 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 have affectations left and right. The parents here are obsessed with old school traditions, authentic colonial atmosphere, and the Revolutionary War. And the food they offer, the two kinds of tuna fish and with clam juice and peanut butter. I mean, these are things that you would find out of a, like a woman's day, you know, better homes and gardens. She said she got it out of the Ladies Home Journal, I think. So what is it? What is this scene saying about this interplay? Because Auntie Mame is the wealthy New York one, right? With all these friends who are movers and shakers in the art world. So we're on her side, but at the same time, it's hard to watch that scene and not think that she's being a snob. Yeah, isn't that kind of an interesting thing? And that Pat, but Patrick, but they're is also being anti-Semitic. It gets superseded 
when you hear them going on about people bidding for the adjoining property. Um, it's a man named Abraham Epstein, which, of course, Auntie Mame's like, oh, the cellist, he's wonderful. And they're like, well, no, this is a restricted area. So, right, and they're saying, do you understand Abraham Epstein? No, he's Jewish, you know, and this is restricted. Actually, the restricted part just goes up to their patio. Yes. So the idea is that they're going to buy, and in fact, they invite Mame to come in on the scheme to buy up the plot of land for sale next door to prevent the Epsteins from moving in and to build a house for Gloria and Patrick. And, and it's at this moment that you see the brilliance of Rosalind Russell's performance because she Im- almost immediately begins hatching a scheme. And you can see it in her eyes that she is going to foil these plans by having a dinner party of her own. Right. And that takes us really to the final chapter of this whole very long, very long comedy. The family dinner. We're back in Mame's apartment. There's a new decor, modern art. Uh, it's a kind of brown motif. Yo, think of the World's Fair of 1964. Imagine that. Uh, imagine the late 50s Eames chairs, that mm-hmm. type of style here. Very avant-garde art. Um, there's a koi pond, even. <laughs> yes. Uh, we also see Agnes, who's still there, and she's now pregnant. So this is a couple <laughs> yeah. months after the previous, you know, night out with O'Banion, which makes me think now of the actual Auntie Mame who was taking in all kinds of outcasts oh, and yeah. people who didn't have a home. Well, this seems very parallel to that. By the way, I should mention really quickly that the uh, design is courtesy the des- the Danish designer Ul Ulu. Oh, who they mentioned. <laughs> Uli Ulu. Did he really do it? <laughs> no, that's oh. a fake name. But oh. I, just, it's like, I thought it's, you said it was courtesy of him. Well, but no, I mean, it's in the in the movie. It is. Oh, right. Ul, yeah. Ul Ulu. <laughs> and, but we learned that fact because of Mame's new secretary, a woman named Pegine. Yes, Pegine Ryan, played by Pippa Scott. And so, of course, Mame is, we imagine, it's right here at the front trying to kind of get her together with Patrick. Cause, because And they have this ridiculous meet-cute here in the living room with the ladder. Oh, and, it's, and, it's, it's silly. <laughs> well, so the Upsons arrive for the big dinner. A Mame comes, like, you know, swishing down the, the staircase. Of course, she's in a kind of, like, silver, almost like Aladdin outfit. Um <laughs> And she welcomes them to her place, the Burnside Fireside. This furniture is unconventional, needless to say. And there's a, a bit of a, a game, a slapstick involving the rising and falling divans that they sit on. There are all kinds of levers and switches that take their, that, that at one point hoist Doris Upson like way up into the air. <laughs> they have these drinks that she's made, these special drinks called the Flaming the flaming Maze. Is that right? <laughs> I, they're, they're lit on fire. Well, Nobody <laughs> can drink them. Well, at one point she, she turns. So she, there now. Are we all lit? Yes. <laughs> she serves them pickled rattlesnake. <laughs> Agnes joins them, and Mrs. Upson says, Oh, and tell me, what does Mr. Gooch do? And and Agnes, of course, bursts into tears uh, because there is no Mr. Gooch. And then Vera Charles and Lindsay Wolsey show up. And Lindsay has the manuscript. Right? I mean, he has her completed book, right? Yes. Like a, a, a version of it. And they start reading it. In the big chaotic scene where some of the pages are kind of like tossed around and Patrick reads some and Vera reads some. Right, because so the book is just about to come out. But in the meantime, before that even happens, Gloria 
in order to make a good impression, runs up to Vera Charles and says, Miss Charles, I've just got to tell you how much I adored you and Mary of Scotland. And she said, did you, my dear? That was Helen Hayes. <laughs> and I looked it up. I looked it up, Greg. And Mary of Scotland was, it was a Broadway play that did star Helen Hayes. Oh. And it ran on Broadway from 1933 to 34 with 248 performances. It played at the Alvin Theater, um, which is today's Neil Simon, home today to the Cher Show. <laughs> so that was, but Helen Hayes was in that? Yes. Okay. So here we have uh, this like like confusion, flaming drinks, like elevated seats. We chapters. have pe- chapters everywhere, and then of course, Acacia's Page walks in. So Patrick's old grade school teacher with the the fish family, who really shouldn't be there. I mean, this is just like. Like, she is sending a signal to Patrick that she's trying to ruin this. Well, she's sending a signal to Patrick that he shouldn't forget who his real family is. Right, And these are the people who actually raised him. And that he needs to, you know, respect that. And appreciate who he's who he is. So I mean, Gloria is just taking all this in. Well, why didn't you tell me your aunt was literate? (laughs) (laughs) So then she, Gloria, does the most amazing thing in the whole movie, right? And and I I wonder, you think we can just play a clip of perhaps Yes. I mean, as you said, everybody has chapters from this book and people are reading things out loud and you see Patrick awakening to to realize how he's been raised by these extraordinary people. And what a glamorous life with all of these amazing different stories. At one point, like she says, this is just like Edna Ferber. Like oh. there's it's so exotic <laughs> and so exciting. But you know, Gloria wants to get in on this. And, and Patrick even says, Hey, I forgot about that time when we all got caught in the speakeasy. <laughs> I think I was ten. Yeah, I mean there's there's incredible memories that are flooding back. Gloria feels left out, and so she blurts in with a story and a claim of her own, a claim that, well, you could practically write a whole book about what happened to me. I beg your pardon, Gloria? I said you could practically write a whole book about what happened to me. Oh? Oh, thank you. Yes. Bunny Bixler and I were in the semifinals, the very semifinals, mind you, of the ping pong tournament at the club. And this ghastly thing happened. We were both playing way over our heads, and the score was 29-28. And we had this really terrific volley, and I stepped back to get this really terrific shot. And I stepped on the ping-pong ball. (laughs) Oh, I just squashed it to bits. And then Bunny and I ran to the closet of the game room to get another ping pong ball, and the closet was locked. Imagine. (laughs) We had to call the whole thing off. Well, it was ghastly. Vera, at this point, turns to Gloria's parents and says, aren't you lucky that your future son-in-law is heavily featured in one of the raciest books of the year? (laughs) Patrick, I had no idea how many times you unzipped me and put me to bed. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) To which she says, oh, it's okay, Ann Vera. You were usually passed out. (laughs) Then there's a telegraph from Brian O'Banion. Who who has been missing. Who has been missing. Agnes realizes that, in fact, like during her like heady evening of decadence, she actually did get married to Brian. So actually, she's not an unwed mother. She's she's actually married. Yes, but then we also find out 
that Mame is so generous that she is dedicating all of her royalties from the book, which is destined to be a bestseller, giving all of her royalties to the Epstein Home for Refugee Jewish Children in Mountebank. <laughs> Adjacent to the property that Gloria's parents own. At that point, Gloria runs into these gigantic cords, which are connected to all the furniture, and everything is just like absolute mayhem. And The Upsons departs. Babcock laments that for nine years, he's been trying to protect this boy. You've ruined my plans, he says to Mame, who retorts, well, Patrick won't allow you to settle him down in some dry, vain, restricted community, make an Aryan from Darien, <laughs> and marry him off to a girl with braces on her brain. <laughs> and so Auntie Mame has saved Patrick. <laughs> and, of, and, of course, the last and final scene is a sort of a flash forward. Nine, nine years, years to 1946. And indeed, Patrick is now married to Pegeen. And they in themselves have a young child, a young boy. Yes. They are living at this point at 224 East 50th, which is between 2nd and 3rd. So essentially just a couple blocks away. Not that far. (laughs) And that address today is still a lovely four-story brownstone. And she's swinging back from Punjab, India to New York. But she'll need to return to India shortly to pick up Uncle Lindsay, uh, once he's finished with his course in yoga. So we've learned now that she and Lindsay Wolcott, the publisher, have now been become married, which makes a lot of sense, and we wanted them to get together in the first Although place. Although it's interesting how, like, they, the movie just downplays it. Oh, you have I, to really you know, watch it many times. A movie in the 1950s would not have their main character get married off screen. So that really is kind of an extraordinary gesture here. Yeah. And that the fact that he doesn't really even play a, a role in this last scene where it really is a a return to the kind of motherly figure that she has developed into and she is now passing that experience and love on to Patrick's son. Michael, who enters from the back of the the stage carrying a sword and learning a scimitar. From, yes, and learning <laughs> from his auntie Mame, she invites Michael to join her in India. You know, the parents, of course, protest, but but finally give in. And little Michael repeats to his parents, life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death. And with that, <laughs> Auntie Mame whisks him off to India. <laughs> For a few weeks, you know, why not? Well, we'll be back by Labor Day, she says. Isn't that sometime <laughs> in November? <laughs> and then we get some more jewels and the end. And we come to the end of our epic retelling here of Auntie Mame. So thank you very much for being a patron of the Bowery Boys. We could not do our regular show um, without your involvement. It quite literally helps us pay our bills and supports us in our day-to-day efforts and, and makes it possible for us to do research for the Bowery Boys show. So on behalf of Tom and Auntie Mame and Patrick Dennis, we thank you. And we'll see you at the movies. Movies.